Hi. Hi. This is Nathaniel. And this is Trevin. Welcome to Rest the Spell. I hope you enjoy it. Come in. Let me tell you, we've been preparing all day. Yep. We've had the, the, teas, the tea is boiling. Mm-hmm. The poetry book is open. Mm-hmm. Our guest is arriving. And our ears are ready to listen. Yes, it is. So just come in today. And, and rest, rest the spell. spell. Good morning, Trevin. Morning, Nathaniel. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. You just want to go ahead and introduce our guest? Oh, I'd love but to. I, I got it. I got All it. All right. Okay, so our guest this morning is a great father, father of three amazing children, um, an author of a book called Hinge Moments. I think he has a, another book. I forget what it slipped in my mind. Um, former president of Gordon College and current president of Taylor University. Oh. Michael Lindsay. <laughs> Thank you very much. We are so excited to have you this morning. Thank you. We are, this is been a, this is a blessing. We have had a great lineup of people in the last few weeks, and you really have been able to make this awesome. So yeah. So let's get right into the football segment. Um, so <laughs> yet again, um, the Lions. I, I'm a Lions fan. That's mm-hmm. unfortunate. Um, it is unfortunate. <laughs> um, the bright side is we're the closest to winning a game we have been all season. Yeah. Well, I guess other than team. Justin Tucker, Justin Tucker put team. us to sleep. But um, it was it was a sad one watching Matt Stafford, but also exciting because mm-hmm. I hope he actually is successful on a personal level. Yeah. But yet again, we are 0-7. Colts, Colts won their third game of the season. Third game. Sunday night. It was a great game. It was an awesome game. It was a yes. game. Pouring rain. Uh-huh. It was something that I did not think Carson Wentz would play at as well as he did. Mm. And he did not play well. Great. He did not play amazing, but I get to go to a Colts game soon. I'm really excited about that. Me too. I get to go to my first one right after Thanksgiving. Okay. It's, that one is against... Tampa Bay. Oh. Oh, and I have a awesome. friendship with Tom Brady, so I'd like to be able to see him in action. Right, that's awesome. Yeah. I really want to. I really want to go to that game to see Tom Brady, but that's going to cost me. I, that's just. I know it's going to cost me a buck for a college student. <laughs> so <laughs> you got to yeah. find a friend who has a ticket who that invites is true. you. That's that is my true. key. Yeah. So go ahead. Okay. Um, you want to get right into it? Yeah, for yeah, sure. We don't have much. We, the life is too short. Yes. So this is a question that I've been um, really interested in, um, especially kind of as college students. I think that one of our unique superpowers is passion. Um, mm-hmm. I think that like a lot of times Trevin and I are at an age of our life where um, right and wrong seems very clear. It may not always be correct, but it seems clear. And I think it seems like there's a lot of goals that I think both of us are really filled with. Um, but... I think we're now at the point where we're pivoting from just having these ideas in theory and putting that into reality. Um, And as someone who has been around college students for a really long time and as someone who authored a book on hinge moments of kind of converting these pivotal points, what would be some advice you have to like the next future change makers um, and the future people who are going to be creating these movements? I think one of the key insights I learned uh, while writing Hinge Moments, it's based on 10 years of research where I interviewed 550 senior leaders. And one of the things that really struck me is so often we are afraid to take risks. And so one of my main words of encouragement to students at Taylor is don't be afraid to take risks. Mm -hmm. Try out for the team. Go for the play. Take a class in an area where you're not guaranteed an A. Do the things that feel a little bit more challenging because the reward benefit is so much greater than the likelihood of failure. And uh, after interviewing some of the most amazing people, I found that those folks who succeeded over the long call were ones who were willing to stick their neck out and take a risk. Yeah, yeah. Um, what are some kind of um, 
So when I was reading, so I read Hinge Moments this summer before I moved out to um, Wyoming. And something that really kind of like struck with me is you talked about there's like a this like period of discomfort like in that immediate um in that immediate change and it, you kind of talked about how like how you handle that really kind of determined kind of the efficacy of that transition mm-hmm. um could you maybe speak more onto some of the things that you noticed yeah so in the book i talk about seven stages of transition that we go through so change happens immediate in our life but there are phases before the change occurred and then in the wake of it that sort of help us and our soul to make peace with whatever that change might be and the low point is is known as sort of the intersection phase or what you might call the liminal phase. Liminal is a Latin word, comes from threshold. So when you're between two rooms or between two spaces or between two chapters of your life. And when you're at that low point is when you're really struggling. So you don't have as much support. You really have to rely upon your family and longtime friends. And oftentimes you're feeling more insecure, more afraid, more nervous. The way that we conduct ourselves in that intersection phase, the character that we develop, the spiritual disciplines that we practice, the way we carry ourselves has a disproportionate impact of the rest of our life. And so you really want to be close to the Lord and attuned to his purposes during that intersection phase because it determines the angle of your trajectory after Mm. that. That's awesome. Um, How has the transition in your life been? Like it's now that you're kind of settling in, you're getting to start to experience the Indiana cold. Um, How has that been for you? Oh, Indiana cold is nothing compared to New England cold (laughs) so far. So that's awesome. Uh, We're loving it. And, you know, I would just say we love being here. People have been so friendly and warm and welcoming, and it's been a really, really great blessing. That's awesome. Um, Where have you been, like, what's one area that you feel, like, especially blessed in your life right now? I think that we've been just uh, so amazingly welcomed with uh, extraordinary hospitality, people bringing us cookies and writing notes and making us feel welcome. Um, I had really prayed that the Lord would lead me to a place where my gifts would align with what the institution needs and where we could be you know, successful as a family and that we could also be very uh, blessed. And we're finding that in exceeding measure. So I never dreamed that the Lord would call me to the cornfields of Indiana, mm-hmm. but here I am, mm-hmm. and uh, I couldn't be happier. What are um, some of your growth points that you are starting to desire for Taylor as you're starting to kind of I mean, yeah, yeah. I think that Taylor has this extraordinary community and a vibrant campus culture, but I think it's also important that we not just be here to serve ourselves, that we exist to be able to um, minister to a world in need as part of our mission statement. And so part of it is for us to be more attentive to what's happening in the wider world and to be responsive to it. So I love that we have Lighthouse missions trips that we take in J-Term. And I love the fact that we have students who are thinking about how they can bless and serve through their vocations and their callings. But my hope is that we will be even more focused on what the Lord is doing in the wider world and that we could try and help minister to those um, who the Lord brings along our path. I also really want us to be an extraordinary blessing for the community of Upland. Mm. We're, you know, when our classes are in session, we double the uh, local population. Mm -hmm. So there's an opportunity here for us to be a great blessing. Yeah. I think that, that that's really interesting because, like, y- you bring up that point about Taylor University being, like, kind of the heart of Upland, Indiana. And I've always kind of heard the quote, like, if Taylor University didn't exist, like, we do these, like, world missions and stuff, like, 
like maybe the world might feel it, but like would Grant County feel the impact? Mm. And like that's always just been like a big on my heart about like what would it be like if Taylor University like disappeared? Like would Grant County even notice? Mm. Because I feel like you like you're pr- pretty on like dot right there is that Taylor University isn't great at reaching out to the community. We're pretty well. I think we could be better. Yeah, that's the key thing. Right. Yeah, so I think that's really interesting. How do, how do you think there are some steps to, like, do that? Like, ensure that when Upland, Indiana kind of revolves around our college? Well, um, I'm asking one of my colleagues on the senior leadership team, Ron Sutherland, to be very intentional about creating opportunities for us to get to know and serve Upland better. Our new vice president for enrollment and marketing, Holly Whitby, who starts mm-hmm. on November 1st, uh, she is uh, intentional about saying, how can we be a blessing to this local community? And we're starting to talk more about it. And that's the first step of helping to develop yeah. a larger framework where we can make a positive difference. Um, one thing I just want to circle back just a little bit. You mentioned about how you have been praying for your strengths to align with Taylor University. Um, can you maybe speak a little more on like kind of like what um, – the strengths that you ha- feel like you have coming into the Taylor University. And I want to preface that by saying, like, I think everyone here at Taylor is so thankful and we all see those. I'm just curious what your perspective is on that. Well, I would say that uh, it became apparent to me in the search process that Taylor was really looking for somebody who had experience in the presidency. So somebody who knew the job and knew what was involved. Because being a university president, I mean, it's a very challenging yeah. job. And, uh, there's nothing like experience to help um, mature you and educate you. I'm a much better president than I was a decade ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, I make tons of mistakes still, but I promise I could make more. <laughs> and so I'm grateful that uh, the Lord has taught me over the decade that I served at Gordon. <clears throat> I also think that uh, Taylor is primed for a larger footprint in the academy um, so wanting to make a more positive difference in the world of ideas and uh, helping to raise the profile of the university both nationally and globally. And those are things that I'm passionate about, things that I've had some experience with, and that I look forward to being able to take the good work of our faculty and staff, the amazing students, and help to raise that profile for many more people to be able to see. For too long, Taylor has hid its light under a bushel, and it's mm-hmm. time for us to become a city on a hill. Wow. Just did a Bible study on that this morning. Um, <laughs> that exact verse. Um, so another thing that we share in common is that we're both big fans of Harold J. Akinga. Hmm. Um, so I have the pleasure of, <laughs> sorry, Trevin, but I have I'm not. Pleasure, I'm not. <laughs> I have the pleasure of being on the honors cabinet here, and our honors guild is named after, um, after him. Yeah. And so we. Some people take it more seriously than others. I believe we have an unofficial history book that is like no one's allowed to do any research before they write in it. So I'm not sure how accurate it is. We have our unofficial history of Harold J. Um, but this is another thing that I have uh, really appreciated from afar is how serious of an academic you are as well. And I think you began to touch on that in the last um, in the last kind of comment. But I think especially with Taylor, sometimes. Um, we love each other so much that sometimes we forget to do homework. I think is probably a good way to put it, Trevin. Yes, especially yeah, I, that in our happens room. to me every once in a while. I think, I think between at least in our room, we yeah. happen to just get so filled with um, brotherly love that we sometimes <laughs> forget to do that part of our. But that's why we're here. Like we're here for right. an education, and I think sometimes that might be a little bit of a pulse of Taylor. And so I'm kind of curious of because I can I yeah I'm so I'm kind of curious on what your um, goal in terms of like the actual academic side of 
um, the university is? Because I don't think that we really talk about it a ton as an institution. Mm. Well, I mean, we're blessed that Taylor is a amazing institution that outside ranking organizations like U.S. New ranks, ranks us number one in the Midwest. So we're grateful to have those kinds of accolades that recognize the academic work that's happening here at Taylor. And um, I think that part of my job over the course of this year while we're developing a strategic plan and thinking about the future of the university is to identify areas of real strength and ability and to build upon those. So clearly there's a lot of energy around health professions, for example, mm -hmm. and so there's an opportunity there. Clearly with the opening of our new finance lab, we can see the good work that's happening I in get business to, finance. I get five hours of class in there He enjoys day. the fruits of that labor. I, I tell you. That's been a blessing. It is amazing for us to have a classroom full of Bloomberg terminals mm -hmm. for undergraduates to be able to work with. It's It uh, puts you in a whole different league of yeah. uh, undergraduate it, uh, it's insane. finance students. Mm -hmm. So it's going to serve you really well. And I think there's real opportunity with uh, the work that we do in the arts, um, mm -hmm. film and media, theater, music. So there's things that Taylor has done well historically that I think are opportunities for us to strengthen. I also think there are areas for us to grow and develop new programs mm -hmm. that we might think about that could be a real blessing to the community. Mm -hmm. So all of those, I think, will be opportunities that over the course of this year we're looking to identify and help to uncover. And I think, and this is kind of going all the way back to your very first visit at Taylor, um, when you kind of sat with a lot of the student leaders. And I think, if I remember correctly, you mentioned that you might have an interest in teaching a class yourself. Probably, maybe not in the extreme near future. But I would that is that something that you still see maybe happening? Absolutely. I'm I'm in conversation about possibly teaching a sociology elective maybe next fall. Oh wow, that's awesome. Oh. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, I bet a lot of people will take it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love teaching. Uh, it's what draws me to higher education. Mm -hmm. And so um, I was blessed uh, over the course of my presidency at Gordon. I was able to teach most years mm -hmm. in either the undergraduate or the graduate program. It's complicated because of my travel schedule. I travel 40% right. of the time. Because so. you just traveled to Brazil, right? I did. That's yeah. awesome. So uh, a consistent class meeting time is tough to pull off right. just because of the intensity of the schedule. But I'm hoping to be able to do it, and it seems like there's an openness to it among mm -hmm. my colleagues in the soci sociology department, which I'm really grateful for. So it'll probably be a class along the lines of social dynamics of leadership. That's been my area of research mm -hmm. and focus. And I taught a version of that class at Princeton and then at Rice and then at Gordon. So I'd love yeah. to be able to do a, a Taylor version here maybe next year. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. um, what is life like outside of being the president of Taylor? Especially like in uh, like what has life been like recently and like what if what is for like your entire time that you've been a president what has life been like well it's a very intense job so typically i would say i work you know between 60 and 70 hours mm -hmm. a week so um i always work on saturday to do some of the intellectual labor of the job so mm -hmm. reading writing thinking planning i also use it as my catch-up day to catch up on administrative work um, so most Saturdays I'm in the office, but right. I don't work on Sunday. I really do try to keep a Sabbath uh, part of my life. And I'd say during the week, you know, uh, my day can start as early as 6.30 and it can go as late as 11. Right. But most days it's 12 hours. And um, so there's lots of meetings, lots of chance to connect with folks. But I think you're asking, what's my life outside of that? Yeah. So, I, you know, I prioritize spending time with my girls. So mm. Elizabeth is 17, Caroline and Emily are 11. And so we like to go out to eat. We like to travel. 
We like to spend time together. So finding things that we can do. Friday night, I took Rebecca out on a date, Ooh. and we went down to a, a great place, um, Juniper on Main in Carmel, mm. which is sort of Southern cuisine. Right. And uh, I'm originally from Jackson, Mississippi, so that was great, yeah. and we enjoyed that. Rebecca had some shrimp and grits, which was fun. And then uh, on Saturday night, I took the twins on a date, uh, you know, father-daughter date, mm. and we went uh, to Fort Wayne. We made a run to Costco because mm-hmm. when we get to the big city, we want to try and stock up on all our stuff. Right. But then also had a chance to just enjoy our time with one another. And, you know, I think the the girls, they like to watch uh, NFL football. They like to watch movies. Um, they're involved in dance. So we just find different ways that we can sort of um, blow off some steam and enjoy each other's company. My mother is in love with Costco. <laughs> Once a week, she calls me. She's like, hey, do you need anything from Costco? It's, it's insane. Yeah, my mom's the same way as Sam's Club. Yeah. She knows to always get me, always to get me my grapefruits. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And then I get to go sometimes to get the free samples. Mm. So you know, I don't think they're doing free samples in I the think, I don't era so. of COVID because I've been looking for them for a while and I haven't mm-hmm. seen them. So yeah, because my brother just moved to the Fort Wayne area mm. and he goes to Costco and he was telling me about it. And yeah. So um, you kind of mentioned a little bit about how you use Saturdays for your, the intellectual side. So you just kind of finished wrapping up your last book, Hinge Moments. Um, have you already kind of thought about what maybe your next like project is or has there just been too much for you to? Yeah, the book just came out a couple of months ago. So we're still very early on in yeah. the book's release and trying to share the good word about the book. In fact, all of your listeners should go and buy a copy of Hinge Moments mm-hmm. available at Amazon or your favorite bookseller. Yeah. And uh, we, highly re- we, bo- we both highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Um, it's, uh, it's a project that, that took me years to, to work on. And um, I, I do a book about once every seven years. That seems yeah. to be my pattern. So I've got a few years to go before the next mm-hmm. one would come out. But I'm looking forward to being able to share the story of Hinge Moments, getting opportunity to travel. Just mm-hmm. last week I did an event uh, with a church in New York. So excited about more people getting to know about it. And I hope it's a blessing to people who read it. Yeah. I mean, as an independent plug, like I kind of mentioned a little bit, but... I, we, Trevin and I had the pleasure of going to your book signing. Um, I don't know if you remember, we were, I believe, one and two for getting our books actually signed. I think I, think I was three somehow. Oh, you were three, but I was one. Yeah. Um, but Very anyways, um, I did, I did read it because I was going through um, a pretty big change of, I moved out to the um, Teton Valley and I worked on a ranch, um, ranch camp as a trail guide um, for children. And that was going to be a pretty big shift. Um, and I distinctly remembered the thing that really, really shift like uh, stood out to me. I kind of mentioned it again, but was like in that moment of transition, like how you handle the small things have, like you said, a disproportional effect, um, and it continues to increase. And so, like I think, like even just like in the simple way of like I committed that by the end of the week I was going to know, like intimately know every single person's name and the entire like organization, mm. um, and just like making sure that I was. Like, like just slightly early to every single like meal and being able to just have like a conversation with somebody there. And I genuinely, I genuinely, I, I feel like knowing myself, I probably would have done some of those things to a certain extent, but I don't think with the intentionality with that, I'm really grateful for that. So like the book, I think, and the beautiful part of it too, is that it takes, 
it takes you through many different stages um, because obviously you're a, you were, were a college professor and I've been working with universities for the majority of your career. And so like you do tailor it towards college students, but you also talk about high school graduates coming in. Like I believe you share a statistic about how I believe it was like if students go home for Labor Day um, mm. weekend, it has like an effect it does. on and like for me as a PA this so year, just I encourage that. them to stay on campus mm-hmm. because if they stay on campus. They're much more likely to develop a best friend in the college years. Yeah. They're much more likely to find a spouse during the college years. Most much more likely to report high levels of both belonging and satisfaction with their undergraduate mm. experience. That's crazy. It's amazing. Yeah. So much of that bonding happens early on. So we say mm-hmm. stay on campus, develop friends. And if you didn't do it, there's still opportunity. There's still time. But I do encourage students to stay on campus if they can. Yeah. And so I've been sharing that with my freshmen uh, as a PA this year throughout the year. Um, it's been applicable in that sense. And then you also take it from another like i believe you even you even cited this um i don't entirely remember the age but you talked about this one guy who you did for your study who is rather old and he um he like ran his company into the ground kind of and refused to give up and started a new company yeah and so like like throughout ages no matter where you are in life this book applies Mm. to you yeah um so to all of our listeners. Well, thanks for the endorsement. Appreciate it very yeah. much. <laughs> um, through that process, like the list of people that you got to interview is pretty awesome. Yeah. Who is one of the most, I guess, or like their story, whose story was the most shocking? and Or like somebody that like you're like, wow, like I did not believe they were as passionate. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. So uh, Colin Powell just passed away uh-huh. uh, from complications with COVID. And mm-hmm. I had a chance to interview okay. uh, Secretary Powell. And that was an amazing experience. I met him in his office in Northern Virginia. He's a big man, broad shoulder, Mm -hmm. big features. And he sort of leans over this table and he's in your space. And I'd sent him a packet of materials before we did the interview about what I was interested in studying and why I wanted to talk to him. And he pulled it out and he said, you know, Michael, before we start this interview, I just got to tell you, you know, I read all the stuff you sent to me and I know you've been working on this for a while, but really it just seems to me like it's pretty much worthless he throws it on the table. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what do I say? This is Colin Powell. And fortunately, I had the presence of mind to just be quiet. And I said, well, that's interesting, General Powell. Say more. And for the next five minutes, he just berated me. He said, first off, what's to say that I'm a leader? My wife doesn't see me as a leader. My kids don't see me as a leader. Why do you think I'm a leader? And even if you think I am a leader, what's to say you're going to figure out what makes me tick in the course of an hour-long interview? I mean, give me a break. You're not that good. You're not going to be able to figure it out. And then if even if you could, what's to say that you're going to be able to apply it to other people? Because what works for one person doesn't work for another. We're all made differently. You know, it just doesn't seem to me that it would fit. And so then you make this point about being a White House fellow, which was one year in my life. It wasn't that significant, just one thing along the way. And even if it were significant, what's to say that it makes a difference with other people? I mean, it's just the whole premise of your project is just, honestly, as I think about it, it's just worthless. And I mean, I'm feeling about two inches tall right. at this moment. And I'm thinking, do I just excuse myself? What am I supposed to do? And I said, well, General Powell, I, you know, I, I hear you and I understand what you're saying, but I'm just wondering, how do you reconcile that with what you wrote in your autobiography? Because I had read every page of his autobiography. And it's huge. It's like 600 pages. And uh, I said, General Powell, I remember you described your White House fellowship as being a turning point. He said, oh, well, it was just one turning point among many. I said, no, if, if I might, General Powell, if I recall correctly, you got a chance to work directly with Frank Carlucci, who at the time was the director of the Office of Management and Budget. You were his White House fellow. And Carlucci took a liking to you and developed a real 
interest in you, became a mentor, even a sponsor for the rest of your career. In fact, I remember in 1981 when he was named National Security Advisor, he handpicked you to be his deputy, which was shocking at the time because nobody took somebody from the military to be the National Security Advisor. That didn't happen. And then in 1985, when he stepped down from the job, there were many people vying to become his successor. And I remember James Baker and Ed Meese, these other people had ideas of who should be the next National Security Advisor, and you weren't on their list. But Carlucci lobbied for you in front of President Reagan. In fact, he demanded that President Reagan name you as his successor, which the president did. And you became National Security Advisor. During that time, you developed a very close relationship with the then Vice President George Bush. Many people say that because of that close relationship you would have with him, when Vice President Bush was elected president, he named you as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You wouldn't have gotten that if you had not had that close working relationship with the president. And then because of that, you were working very closely with him during the first Gulf War. Oftentimes, you would spend time on the weekends at Camp David, up at their home in Kennebunkport. Through that, you got to know not just the president, but also his family. And through that, you met George W. Bush. So that in the late 1990s, when he was considering a bid for the presidency, he asked you to be an informal advisor to help him think about global affairs, foreign relations. So it wasn't terribly shocking when he named you the secretary of state, a position that you yourself have said is the most important position you've ever had in your career. And as I look back on it, that entire career you owe to the relationship you have with Frank Carlucci that you developed as a White House fellow. It wasn't just a turning point. It was the turning point. It changed your life. He leans back in his chair and he says, well, maybe you got a point. Let's do the interview. (laughs) (laughs) So then what did the interview look like? Well, Mm -hmm. we went through everything, uh, talked about his whole life, and it it, it changed the dynamic. He was just testing me. He Mm -hmm. wanted to see if I'd done my homework and if I might be able to really talk in an intelligent way. I subsequently learned this is very common for Colin Powell to sort of take junior people and sort of throw them off their balance in the beginning just to see how they respond. But that was an interesting interview, one I had not expected and one that is still memorable to this day. That's awesome. So how do you conduct um, an interview like that at that depth in that time frame? Well, you do a lot of research. For every one-hour interview, I'd done about 20 hours of research for each of those people. So you know them fairly well. You've done a lot of work. You have a set of questions that you ask everybody, but then you also have a set of questions that are customized for that person. Mm-hmm. But I'm just trying to move through it. There's an arc in a conversation over the course of an hour. You start off easy, friendly, light. You get to some of the difficult things probably about two-thirds of the way in, asking about some mistakes they've made, challenges, maybe some inconsistencies you see in their track record. And then you try to close it in a positive way so that they feel good at the end. I also gave people the chance to review their interviews. They could change their answers. So it wasn't a gotcha moment. It was really trying to do serious social science work. And, um, you know, I trained for that at Princeton, so it served me well when it came time to doing those interviews. What was the rate that you were able to, like, conduct these interviews? If you had to put so much, like, effort beforehand, and you were able to do not not even just so many, but the most, you know? Well, in the early days, it was, you know, I would do one a week or something like that. But um, toward the end, so I had been approached about the Gordon presidency. I was a faculty member at Rice. I did not think that I would actually be selected as the president. I thought that I would just go through the process. I thought it was part of me just being open to the Lord's leading. But in January, this would have been January of 2011, one night I was getting into bed and I said to my wife, you know, I think that this is getting somewhat serious with Gordon. And I still have like 90 interviews to go to meet that magic mark of 550. And, you know, if I take that job, I would start July 1st. So that's, I have less than six months. I can't imagine getting all those interviews completed in the next six months. And Rebecca sat up in the bed and she said, 
well, we've been working on this for years, and you're going to finish that project. <laughs> and I took that as sort of a mandate. Right. And so that semester, spring semester of 2011, I was teaching classes on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, three classes. And I would teach a class at 9 o'clock in the morning on Monday, teach a class at 10 o'clock, and then a class at 1 o'clock, and I'd be done at 2 o'clock. After that class, I would race to the airport, hop on a plane, fly to a city, get there probably, let's say I fly to New York. I get there about 10 or 11 o'clock at night, get to my hotel, would go to bed at midnight, wake up the next morning, 6 o'clock. I would do five interviews throughout the day, five. That is a ton yeah. as a social scientist. Then I'd finish my last interview about 5 o'clock. I'd race to the airport. I'd fly back to Houston, get to bed late that night, teach my classes the next day at 9, 10, and 1, go to the airport again on Wednesday afternoon, fly out now to Los Angeles, go and do four or five interviews in L.A. on Thursday, fly back, teach my classes on Friday, prepare on Saturday for the next round of interviews, and I did that for 15 weeks, and that's how I finished it. It was amazing. One day I went to New York, and I interviewed the founder of Home Depot, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase, the president of Teachers College, the strongest, top-ranked graduate school of education in the country, the CEO of the American uh, or the Museum of Natural History, which is this amazing museum on the Upper West Side in Manhattan, and then uh, interviewed um, a business executive who owned Estee Lauder. Those are five people I, I interviewed in one day. It was like a who's who of the American movers and shakers, and I was just trying to complete the study. So it was moving pretty fast at the end. Were you doing all of the organization and like the logistics of setting those interviews up as well? Or did I had you a have team. Someone... I had a team. Of, I was going to say. <laughs> I had a team of about a dozen undergraduates who were working for me, and they were all in, and we were really committed to bringing it to close. So it was a big team project. That was probably great energy, though. It was. It was fun. And, man, the very last interview, my 550th interview, I didn't actually finish before I started at Gordon. I had one interview to go. Who was it? It was Drew Faust, the president of Harvard. And mm -hmm. so I thought she was a good person for me to finish with because I was now a college president. So she was my final interview. And how was that? It was terrific. Um, the Harvard presidency is, you know, epic. And it was uh, amazing to get a chance to spend an hour with her, hear about her own journey. She's a historian focused on the Civil War. Never dreamed she'd be the president of Harvard, but... In God's province, that's where she found herself. Hmm. Awesome. We had just a few minutes left, and we wanted to, we want some, we didn't give ourselves a lot of time for this, but I mean, it's okay. If you were to do like a <coughs> quick shot of like the three books that people should read, yeah, what would they be? Well, I'm an author, so of course I'm going to say if they only read three books, they need to read Faith in the Halls of Power, View from the Top, and Hinge Moments, my <laughs> three latest books. Those That's are really Those important. Are <laughs> um, but if you're asking me what are some other books that have been really meaningful, there's a historical biography it's it's a it's a work of fiction but it's based on the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer called The Cup of Wrath mm -hmm. and that really has been very meaningful to me so I, I love that book and have appreciated it I also um, I read uh, a devotional book that Max Lucado wrote about five years ago called Anxious for Nothing it's an exegesis of Philippians chapter 4 and I found that to be a really great inspiring book with which I love and then there's a recent book um, that just came out on Winston Churchill. I'm a big biography guy. And uh, it's called The Splendid and the Vile. And I read it just as the pandemic was starting. It's really a thick book, five, 600 pages, but it's a great biography. And Churchill is such an uh, enigmatic figure. He's really worth studying. So those would be three that I might recommend. Thank you. Uh, three movies or TV shows? Mm. 
Well, um, our family loves Young Sheldon. Uh, that's oh. been a fun, you know, it's set in East yeah. Texas in the 1980s, early 1990s. So that's been fun. We've really enjoyed that. Um, I love all of the Bond films. So Rebecca and I just went and saw the most recent Bond, which is a very significant one. I won't tell you how it ends, but mm -hmm. it's an important one. If you like the Bond series, you would definitely like this particular one. So um, that's been really fun. I... Um, I also, you know, my favorite all-time movie is uh, this romantic comedy called uh, Legally Blonde, starring Reese Witherspoon. Yep. Uh, it's uh, about this, you know, girl who goes to Harvard, goes to law school, and does well. It was, um, it was a movie that Rebecca and I watched uh, as part of our early married life. And uh, so because of that sort of a chapter of our life, before we had kids, before we had a lot of stress or responsibility, kind of a more carefree season of our life. So we particularly loved that. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, yeah. We really appreciate you coming on. Yep. Uh, and I surely hope that you enjoy the Colts game and that the Colts beat Tom Brady. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be cheering for that as well. I, uh, uh, Brady is amazing. There is a reason why he's the greatest of all time. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it is nice to spread the glory and the fame around yeah. a little bit more. And I'm, I'm really pleased with the Colts. You know, when we moved to Boston, the Patriots started doing really well. So maybe we could be a good luck charm mm. here in Indiana as well. That's a good idea. So have you you've met And then you'll move to Detroit, no. right? I call him he's my friend. He's not my friend. I don't know him at all. <laughs> We're no. definitely going to put in the bio of the show, <laughs> friend of Tom Brady. Yeah, no. Michael um, Lindsay joined yeah, us no, today. Yeah, no, I— I, I was friends with a guy who was the number three person at the Patriots organization, a wonderful guy named Jack Easterby, who's now the general manager of the Texans. Uh -huh. But no, I just say, Tom Brady, we're friends. Um, Emily, my daughter, when she was three, said that she, we should not call her Emily anymore. We should call her Mrs. Tom Brady because mm. she decided she was going to marry Tom Brady. <laughs> we yes. told him, told her that he was already married, but she said that was, you know, a technicality. Jack uh, has a tough job right now. Mm. <laughs> Jack is, does have a tough job. That is That's a tough right. He's a good Christian man, yeah. good Christian leader. But, uh, yeah, you know, these things, NFL is like most of life, right? right. Um, people can be at the top, but they don't stay there for very long. So, I mean, there's a reason why Eugene Peterson talks about the Christian life is about a long, uh, a long obedience in the same direction. And so a large part of it is that you don't always end up on top. But we certainly would love it if our Colts could have a, a good strong end to the season. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Me too. And the Lions. Yeah. Well, do you, are you looking for that. draft picks now? Looking thing? for draft picks. Let's looking just for tank draft. and get a quarterback. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Awesome. We appreciate it so much. Great to be with you. Thank you guys yeah, very much. Right. Yeah. Well, Nathaniel, that Trevin. was a fun 30, sec 30 minutes. It was. Um, but... I wouldn't let you guys get away without a poem. He let would not. He would not. So this one is by um, the wonderful poet Pablo Neruda. Um, it's called From the Heights of Machu Picchu. Rise up and birth with me, my brother. Give me your hand out of the deep. Zone of your widespread sorrow. You will not return from the bedrock depths. You will not return from the subterranean time. It will not return your hardened voice. They will not return your pierced eyes. Look at me from the depths of the earth, you, the farm worker, the weaver, the quiet shepherd, the tamer of the guardian guancos, the mason of the deified scaffolding, the water carrier bearing Andean tears, the jeweler with crushed fingers, the farmer trembling among his seeds, you, the potter, poured in your clay, all ye, bring to the cup of the new life, your ancient buried sorrows, show me your blood and your furrow, tell me. Here I was punished.
because the jewel did not shine, or the earth failed to yield enough stone or enough corn. Point to the rock on which you fell, to the woods on which they crucified you, strike the old flints, turn on the old lamps, crack the whips embedded throughout the centuries in your wounds, in the axes with blood-encrusted sparkle. I am coming to speak for you and through your dead mouths, through the earth joined together, all the scattered silent lips. Out of the depths speak to me during this long night as if I were anchored to you. Tell me everything, chain by chain, link by link and step by step. Sharpen the knives you'd locked away. Put them on my breast into my hands like a river of ye yellow lightning, like a river of buried tigers, and let me cry. Hours, days, years, blind ages, stellar centuries. Give me silence, water, hope. Give me the struggle, the iron, the volcanoes. Attach your body to me like magnets. Come to my veins and my mouth. Speak through my words and my blood. Nice. Pablo Neruda, everyone. Beautiful. It's like a... It's like a brick. Mm. Speaking of hitting like a brick, that was a pretty good interview. That was pretty good. Um, I, I really was like, when he said something about Tom Brady, I was like, I really want to circle back to that. Yeah. But like, I was like. Because after he, he is known for, like, he is known academically for talking to people who are great leaders. Yeah. So it the, wouldn't be that shocking if he conducted. Right. I was talking about a platinum leader. That would be Tom Brady. Exactly. I was like, he's as far as Tom Brady. I was like, uh. What? I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't. Have Are been you that actually? Surprised. We were a little surprised, but also like, we kind of believed it. <laughs> right. But yeah. Um. Yeah, but that was a great time. I really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I think he. I think it was really valuable. Yeah. Yeah. I think he shared a lot of information with us that we haven't gotten to hear before. Oh, I forgot to. I was gonna ask him about because he spoke in senior seminar the other day. Yeah. And. I love seeing this side of Dr. Lindsay. Um, mm -hmm. He's a wonderful, wonderful speaker and politician, um, and I, I, I really love when sometimes he kind of, he kind of really leans into his academic side because um, yeah. he is um, a pleasure to listen to uh, when he's talking about what he's passionate about. He is. Yeah, I'm sure the our fans enjoy listening to him a little bit more than probably me and you banter like this. Yeah, yeah. So with that, I think <laughs> that's our cue to end. We it. bid you all adieu. Um, thank you so much for listening. Um, smash the likey and subscribe. Um, don't forget, uh, we are still sponsored. Share us on Facebook. We are Mother, yet again, again this week. We're not. We're still sponsored by the DC Chai Latte. It's back. Mm. It's back. Uh, there is another sponsorship ever. in the works. We'll see what we come up with for next week. Yeah, we'll see what we come up with. Do we? Um, do we want to tease our guest for next week? I don't think so. I think uh, we keep it as a surprise. Yeah, I think I think we keep it as a surprise for because there's one reason that Nathaniel and I do not know who we have scheduled for next week right now. But we have someone scheduled. We yeah. have we might like yeah. good amount scheduled, but yeah, we are, um, we almost out of the end of that was like a great three week stretch. It was Mingo, Dyson, and then President Lindsay. Yeah, so. but next week is going to be just as delightful. I can't wait. I can also. My mom and Trevin's mom, if you're listening, we love you. Mm -hmm. And we miss you. Mm -hmm. I'll see you soon. Yep. Bye. This Saturday. Yep. Bye. Bye. See ya. See you later.